welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good to have you with us. <coughs> Let's just go straight to our reading. This is from the message. Walking along the beach of Lake Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon later called Peter and Andrew. They were fishing, throwing their nets into the lake. It was their regular work. Jesus said to them, come with me. I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions, but they simply dropped their nets and followed. A short distance down the beach, they came upon another pair of brothers, James and John, Zebedee's sons. These two were sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their fish nets. Jesus made the same offer to them, and they were just as quick to follow, abandoning boat and father. Last week, we began a short series entitled Follow Me, where I I just want us to have a look again at the whole area of uh, discipleship. All those things always make me really nervous. Is this my fault, or should I be looking at somebody? That's all good. We're going to look at discipleship again. And the fact that we have to work out our discipleship in a very consumer-dominated society, that we are tempted to make God in our own image, that we're tempted to have a great God at our disposal. We briefly touched on the fact that Scripture says that we were made for His pleasure and not for our convenience or our own pleasure. Also, that when we dare to give Him full control of our lives, We don't do it to some crazy, maverick idiot in the sky, but we do it to a God who cares for us and loves us, and we know something of his character. But though for many of us, control is a huge issue, and we want to be in control. Maybe the words of our mouth don't say that in public, but the reality is we all want to have that little bit of control over everything that we do. Andy Stanley says it so well. He says, here's a scary thought. What if God called you to go beyond your comfort level, would you be afraid? Would you try to explain it away or dismiss it as impractical? And in the process, would you miss out on a harvest opportunity for which God has explicitly prospered you for in the first place? As we concluded last week, we did so by looking at a word that sums up the whole thing of of discipleship, and that was around the word of conversion. And each and every one of us, most of us here tonight, have been converted to Christ, that we have come, we have come to him, we've had our sins forgiven, and we're familiar with the phrase conversion. In coming to Christ, we have supposedly given the reins of our life to him, and he will set the course for us in front of us. But we touched very briefly, or I should say I touched very briefly on the fact that in our consumer-based society, we still want to have that little bit of control, and we only want to have if I can say it like this, and I'll come back to it in a few moments, a little bit of a part conversion, that we want him to save us, we want him to change our lives, but we don't want it to go too far, that we run the risk of taking some things from Scripture and leaving others, that we, we say that we love to be friends of Christ, each and every one of us. One of the best things about being born again is tonight we are friends of Christ. That we are also, that we are slaves of Christ. We we accept that theologically, that we are slaves and that we have no rights. But our actions very often think that, well, if I've got no rights, 
surely our lives should be incredibly open to everything and anything that he says to us. That we want to be friends, but the slave bit isn't so attractive. But we can't have one without the other. But so often we can get mixed up by thinking, oh, we're friends of his, so we don't have to do what he tells us. Oh, we're friends. You know, Jesus and I are buddies. Jesus and I, but you know, because we are friends, we have to do what he tells us to do. Discipleship isn't laden down with lots of optional extras. As I wrapped up last week, I alluded to the trend of some who have become disillusioned or perhaps disenchanted or unbelieving of their Christian faith, that there is much talk around in some communities of the possibility of deconverting. Firstly, we have Gwyneth and Chris telling us that they're decoupling. If you can tell me what the difference between decoupling and divorce is, I would want to hear from you tonight. I just want to, it's just like fancy name for divorce. And then we have, or we have a growing amount of blog theologians who have started the process, and they say, of deconverting from their faith, that they're deconverting from Christ. You know, in the dictionary, you will not find the word deconverting. If you do it on a spell check, it just comes up as wrong. There is no such concept as deconverting. But if you do a Google search, in less than a a couple of seconds, you will have 13 million references to deconverting and deconversion. There is something happening out there in the whole area of social media and what people are saying. Two very quick thoughts for tonight. First of all, for those people who are considering it, for those who are thinking about it, we must provide a safe place for people to share their doubts. Doubt is a crucial part of any faith, including the Christian faith. Doubt is almost something that we all should experience at some time. Voltaire says it like this, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. We don't handle doubt, I think, very well. We think, can we really talk about it? Rick Warren says, living by faith isn't living with certainty. It's trusting God in spite of unanswered questions and unresolved doubts. When someone doesn't feel safe to share with other believers about their faith, it's only natural to look to other forums where they can speak freely. When the voices that feel the most affirming of you and your willingness to share your doubts come from outside the church, it is logical to withdraw from the church. It is logical to withdraw from Christians. It is logical to withdraw from the God of the Christians. And surely, if people choose to walk away from the Christian faith, surely they can come back. And sometimes I think we get intimidated by people who say, well, they're going to deconvert. I do believe that we need to be careful that we don't slam the door and through the dismissive nature of our voice or our comments, we make it harder for people to come back in the future rather than welcoming them back. Welcoming them back. <laughs> I am incre- incredibly weary of Instagram theology, which is divorced from the big picture and the reality of life. The answer is not to question doubt, but to wrestle with it. And I think that as we talk around conversion, if we get conversion right, there will still be doubts, but I sometimes think that we have sold something that really isn't biblical conversion. And we'll unpack this again in a few moments. You know, whenever I hear about somebody 
talking about, oh, they want to deconvert. Chris, I wanna, I'm going to separate myself off from God. I always get the image of the prodigal son's father just waiting. One day, a lot of these people will come back if we are open to having a good discussion with them. Secondly, I, I believe that we as the church in the West needs to examine or at, re, at least reevaluate how we talk about and what language we use in regards to a person's coming to Christ. Just take a few moments to develop it. I believe it is so crucial that we all understand what the Bible means about conversion, about coming to Christ. We have, in my opinion, let our language become shabby and sloppy around this whole area of coming to Christ and it adds to the problem. Out of a genuine desire to to reach people for Christ, we've often tried to make Jesus more convenient, more accessible, even more appealing. This tying in with our thoughts of having a consumer-made God, as it were, in the 21st century. It goes something like this. If we can soften Jesus, then perhaps we can more people will come to faith. And if more people come to faith, then of course it's justifiable. We're seeing people one for Jesus. But the Bible doesn't tell us about a Jesus light. It tells us about a Jesus that demands discipleship from us as is part of the deal. Intentionally or not, our language in regard to coming to faith continues. Well, we continue to invite people and they come to Christ. Their sins will be dealt with. There's gonna be more people in heaven. Absolutely Fantastic. And it seems, and it's not deliberate, it seems as if we push the pause button then, and after people have come to Christ, we then talk about discipleship. Come to Christ, pause, let's then, after a season, talk about discipleship. As if discipleship is some second stage of when you've come to Christ and you've drawn breath and you know what you're doing, then let's talk to people about discipleship as if they're ready to progress on. This is totally and completely unbiblical. Any distinction that we have in our mind that there are converts and then you go on to be a disciple after some certain time is completely inaccurate. If and when you come to Christ, you are a disciple. There's no option, that's part of it. Any difference we may infer in our language that allows us to think this, is intrinsically foreign to the New Testament. In fact, if you study the book of Acts at, at, any, at any stage really, you'll find that people were first called disciples and Christians came later. They were disciples and then they became Christians. We get something of an insight into this when we read this, the story of the call of Peter and Andrew, James and John to be fishers of men. He called, they followed, and the words around this clearly indicate that they left everything as they knew it and followed Christ. Just a couple of thoughts around this. I, I firmly believe, and this is a discussion for another day, I firmly believe that it was most likely or highly likely that these four disciples knew Jesus prior to this incident, prior to their calling. Well, if they didn't know him, they were well aware of the, store, the stir, I should say, that he was causing and his existence in the neighborhood. He was beginning to stir up a following. And if they hadn't met him, I really believe that they knew something of his story and of his message and who he was. Their decision to follow Christ was not some reckless spur of the moment, forgive the phrase, to hell with the consequences 
decision, but an opportunity of a lifetime, and they knew what it meant when they started, or they knew something of what it meant when they started. You know, to, to fully understand why this happens, as it does and the reasons, we need to understand the culture and the, the tradition of the day. To read this passage and say, Jesus saw them, called them to be fishers of men, they decided the rest is history. That is not the reality of what happened. That is not being truthful to the culture. That is not being faithful to the tradition of that day. Jesus takes a tradition and completely turns it on its head. And most of you will have heard of this following tradition, but it's one of the best that you have to example, as it were, discipleship. And I just want to run through it. And if you've heard this example before, please bear with me. But it really is so powerful. Many in first century Palestine, if you were a young man, and if you had a growing passion and a growing desire to learn the scriptures and the Talmud, you would be known as a Talmud. These Hebrew Jewish terms, not very good at them. But they were basically students. They were basically apprentices. And when they were together, they were called Talmudin. And they were students and apprentices of rabbis. <laughs> In those days, it wasn't written down. They were taught orally. So you had to listen. You had to follow. You had to do or be everywhere where the person teaching you was. And this is how it went. A Talmud, or Talmud, I should say, a young guy who wanted to learn how to study the Old Testament, he would go to a rabbi, and he would say to the rabbi, can I follow you? That was the tradition. Can I, as a young Hebrew boy who has a passion for the scriptures, can I come and follow you? In his desire, he would have to run the risk of being rejected. He would run the risk of being said, no, you can't follow me. You're not bright enough. You're not good enough. In fact, no, you can't. But his responsibility was, as a young man, to go and find a rabbi. And he ran a, huge, ran a huge risk of being rejected. But if he was accepted, it was an incredible honor. You probably have seen some of these pictures before, but that's what it looks like in 21st century Talmudin. There is the rabbi on the end, or there's the rabbi at the far side, and all these young guys who wanted to study the Old Testament, who wanted to study the scriptures, they would hang virtually on their every word. That is what happened. Don't forget, they have gone to him and say, please, can I follow you? So when Jesus goes to these disciples and asks them to follow him, he is turning convention, accepted cultural norms, and accepted behaviors literally upside down. It wasn't completely unknown for, for a rabbi to go to a student and say, will you f be part of my team, if they were exceptional. But the accepted norm was that the rabbi had to be approached by someone else. So when Jesus goes to the disciples on the beach and he says, follow me, he is making a huge countercultural statement to that day, especially as they were just simply fishermen. They were hard-working, everyday folk, calloused hands who worked day and night. They were not 
educational material. They were not university material. They were just simple men. To draw some analogies, and I can't really do it very well in our culture, is like the CEO of ANZ going to a high schooler who has an interest in maths and saying, hey, stick with me and I will make you a corporate banker. Or it's like Richie McCaw going to Hamilton Boys High School under 15s and saying, let me take that number six and I will turn him into an all black. It's, there's nothing really that computes. Let's come back to the use of our language. For me, this insight really changes how we think about conversion and ultimately our discipleship. The call to follow Jesus, if only seen in, term, only seen in terms as a merciful God asking us to turn from our sins and follow him, then we are only seeing in part and what in truth is a very small part of a far bigger and majestic plan that God has for our life. The invitation from Jesus to his disciples and to us today is not simply turn or burn. Come to me so that you don't go to hell. Just come to me and you secure a place in eternity. But his call to us to be disciples is as radical today as it was to those guys when he said, follow me, follow me, the king of kings, the majestic God, and I will walk with you, I will talk with you, I will discuss with you, I will let you have your doubts. We may even disagree, but let me teach you. To be a disciple is an invitation from the creator of life to learn how to do life, to learn from the one who would know pain and rejection, from the one who would learn to navigate such things and teach us so that we can help other people in exactly the same place to learn from the one who embodies servanthood and generosity and forgiveness and to ask us to walk a Christian walk that is as opposed to 21st century Kiwi culture that you will ever, ever imagine. But having said that, without any soft peddling, discipleship costs everything. It's a life modeled on Jesus. It's a journey paved with sacrifice, with radical love, with suffering. The message isn't an easy sell for any of us, especially today. Let's go back to the Talmud. But what is even more exciting is this. So on the rare occasions, a rabbi chose to ask someone to follow him. He was making a huge statement that he, the rabbi, believed that this, on this occasion, that this young man had the potential, had the ability, had the commitment to be like him. The rabbi wasn't investing in someone who he didn't think was not gonna make it. I think so highly of this young man of what I've seen, he can be like me. It would be an incredible, a remarkable affirmation of the confidence that the teacher has in the students. And it's no different to us today. When Jesus, and for many of us here tonight, he has, calls us to follow him, He's not just trying to rescue us, which he does. He is also saying, I believe in you. I believe that you can be my disciple. I believe that you can follow me through thick and thin, through the fire, through the challenges of life. I am so confident that today I want you to know that I'm calling you to follow me. He is saying that he believes beyond doubt that we, each of us, has the ability in tandem with the Holy Spirit to become like Jesus.
we will make it. You know, he is expressing his total faith in us. And I have to confess, that is so good to hear. I just need Jesus occasionally to tell me, Chris, you will make it. When my life and the reality of my walk don't always add up, I need him to say to me, Chris, you will make it. And if I was a betting man, I'd wager that you need to hear that occasionally too. That you put your name in it, will make it because he is with you, because he has called us. As I said, my life and my faith don't always go in tandem. But I need to be reminded that he believes I will make it. The decision to follow a rabbi as a Talmud meant total commitment in the first century as it does today. Since a Talmud was totally devoted to becoming like the rabbi, he would spend his entire time listening and observing the teacher to know how to understand scripture or how to navigate life or how to put scripture into practice. And the parallel for us is, is so simple, it's so obvious that in the 21st century that we need to say, Lord, I need you to help me apply truth. I need you to help me deal with people. I need you to help me overcome these issues in my life. And he's not going to leave us on our own. You know, <coughs> time doesn't allow. But if you think of that principle about the Talmud and, and the rabbi, and you take it to other stories in the New Testament, it gives you a completely different approach to why, and one we're going to look at very briefly is, why does Peter walk on water? When you have this grid to put it through, it makes a lot more sense. When Jesus, the rabbi, walked on water, Peter, the apprentice, the Talmud, wanted to be like him. He wasn't showing off. It wasn't the bravado. It wasn't, hey, here, I'm Peter, I'm just going to do all this. Certainly, Peter had not walked on water before, and probably he could never imagine that he ever would. Peter's thoughts, I would like to suggest, would go something like this. If this teacher, this extraordinary man, this rabbi, who chose me because I believed I, he could because he believes I could be like him, I must be able to do it too. If Jesus can do it, he believes in me, then I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to walk on water. And yes, he did. It was a miracle. But it was all about being like the rabbi. It was all about being the one who had invested time in him. It could have been something completely different. But on this occasion, it was incredibly radical walking on water. But because the rabbi could do it, hey, I'm his pupil. I'm learning to be like him. If he thinks I can do it, I'm going to go. And when you see so many stories in the New Testament of why Jesus does stuff with his disciples, it's because of this principle of that he has called them. So how do we take this forward? Whenever I read or hear stuff on, on this subject, I always get a little annoyed with preachers or authors when they ask, are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus? And I have to confess, I don't know what that really means. I don't really know what laying my life down for Jesus. I live in a first world country where everything is pretty, pretty easy in that context. I don't live in, in China or in, many, in India. So, I, that sentence loses something of its reality for me on the superficial level. But I suppose I do know what they are saying in part. 
But for me, I prefer it as another writer puts it, and he says it like this. Not only is a disciple willing to die for Jesus, but they are dedicated to living every day of their life for him. I can understand that. I can understand the inherent challenge that comes with that. So how do I do something better than I did? How do I do something better today than I did yesterday? How do I overcome something tonight that I couldn't overcome last night? How do I react in a situation better tomorrow than I did today? And for me, it's always the practical. Oh, something, whatever scripture we have, whatever theology, it's got to be tied into what does this mean for me? So as I was preparing for this series and doing some research, I was looking how we could, as it were, tie it down. How could we land this plane? And I was looking at a, a relevant, I don't know if you've come across the magazine, the relevant magazine from a couple of years ago that I found quite interesting in the way that they talked about the difference between a convert and a disciple. And, one, and while some of the comments can seem a little bit ah, provocative, a little bit harsh, a little bit like, oh, nevertheless, it provokes good discussion. So I want us to see some of the things. They named about 20 different things. I'm only going to just touch on four as we wrap up. First of all, converts are focused on their values interests, worries, priorities, and lifestyles, disciples are focused on Jesus. Second one says, converts go to church, disciples are the church. Thirdly, converts cheer from the sideline, disciples are in the game. Converts hear the word of God, disciples live by it. <laughs> just gonna go through those very, very quickly for just two or three minutes. Here are a few thoughts. Converts are focused on their values, their interests, their worries, their priorities, and lifestyles. Disciples are focused on Jesus. Most of you are, are old enough to remember. Remember the craze that was about 10 years ago? That everybody used to have this bracelet with what would Jesus do? And it's just, and the gimmick, the, the gimmick became bigger than the truth in that sense. It became everybody wore it, it was after the Live Strong thing, what would Jesus do? And some people had some wonderful alternatives on them, but I can't really say them. My mate says, can you get me one of those bracelets? He said, because I love it. This guy wasn't a Christian. He says, oh, because we want Jack Daniels. <laughs> but what is, you know, I think there is something incredibly powerful in the question, what would Jesus do? When we find ourselves in situations what would Jesus do? And I think it's a really valid question to ask ourselves. I have found myself trying to get past the gimmick and often asking myself, what would Jesus do in that situation? How would he have me respond? You know, I, was, I can't remember the, the, the song, but I was driving into work about a couple of weeks ago and I just felt God say to me, would you listen to that song if I was in the car with you? It was, I don't even know, was it coast or breeze? It was nothing. It was the middle of the road radio station and there was some song playing and I just felt that my, my, my spirit being asked that question. Would you listen to that if I was literally sitting in the car with you? And I turned it off. I don't even remember what the song was. I don't even know who the singer was. So we don't have to go and say, well, this type of music's good or this type of music's bad or we can't listen to this singer or that singer. We, that died in the 70s and 80s and we need to leave it there. But there are some things and some situations I really think that we do need to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? 
when somebody annoys us, first thing we want to come back is with some sarcastic wit or some withering comment. Would Jesus do that? Would Jesus, and this is, please, this is always the challenge with discipleship because you can get into legalism. So my, my challenge here is not to give you an example, but to make you think about where you find yourselves and say, would Jesus do this? I believe that converts who are focused on their values, their interests, their worries, their priorities and lifestyles need to focus on Jesus. What would he say? What would he do? Would he go there? What would he say? How would he respond? And I think, ah, oh, Chris, you're getting legalistic in your old age. I really don't think I am. It's part of that, what would Jesus do? Secondly, I think this point is hugely significant for the 21st century. I think this is one of the most important questions after coming to Christ, you ask yourself as a believer, do I go to church or am I part of the church or am I the church? And of course, we know our theology. We know that we are the church. But do I, do we live our lives as if we go to church or that we are the church? That we are part of the answer. That God has got no plan B for this world outside of Christ and the church. And I have a role to play in that. Realizing that we're here on earth for a reason above our own satisfaction and that we are part of the answer. That we don't come to be entertained, but we come together to corporately worship and come around his word. And not to be entertained by the speaker, but to say, God, what do you want to speak to me about tonight? If you said this, I apologize in advance. I've got no idea who said this, but it came back to me. And I deliberately asked, didn't ask who it was. When we had Jessica Harris here, well, she was incredible. You know, the subjects that we talked about, there's no taboo subjects, all these things are out there. And I, it came back to me that someone had decided, you know, I'm not going along to one of the sessions that they had been invited to because this was the answer, and it's a lady, I'm sorry, but the lady said, well, I don't have an issue of porn, so I don't have to go. And on the surface, to me, they're still pretty selfish, but on the surface, that sounds Okay. That's okay if you see yourself as someone who goes to church. But if you are the church, I think the answer needs to be different. I am at this stage in my life, you can say, I don't have a problem with porn, and I thank you, Jesus, for that. But you know, if I take the selfish standpoint, well, I'm not going to bother to go and hear Jessica. But if I see myself as part of the church, as part of the answer, I want to be so upskilled. I want to be so on the cutting edge of how to deal with people who have this problem that I want to be there to glean any piece of information I can so that I can help others. And I may have no one in my life at this moment, but in 5, 10, 15 years' time, some of my friends may come to me and say, you know, I'm struggling with porn, can you help me? And the embarrassing thing will be, no, I can't, not really. Let me go and get somebody else who can help you. If you see yourself as someone who goes to church, you're probably comfortable with the first answer. For me, the second answer has to be, we are the church. And if that was you, I'll never, I got no idea. I really don't have any idea who it was. But if we see ourselves as part of the church, I believe it changes how we think about things. Thirdly, <coughs> converts cheer from the sideline. Disciples are in the game. The real reason that I ref rugby 
is well, there's one reason really. Not only partly is that I love the game, but there's a bigger reason why I ref rugby. It was about oh I don't know, 15 years ago. I was watching Ben and I was watching my nephew playing rugby for this school, and the ref made the worst decision I have ever ever heard, ever seen. It was as close as I am to Jace. And the ref came up with a decision that ended up in one of my son's team getting a red card. And because I just, I just was gobsmacked. And I thought, forgive me, what an idiot. <laughs> he gave a red card to a young guy who had, he clearly wasn't, the ref wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And I was fuming. And I was, I was standing next to my brother, and I was really, really cross. And I, and I just felt God say something to me in my anger. I really wasn't listening. I didn't want to hear from God at that moment. God, you made that guy, and he's an idiot. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to point at anybody. but <laughs> That's the worst decision I've ever had. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and says, Chris, you can continue to stand on the side, and this will continue to happen or you can get in the game and make a difference. That's why I ref rugby. That is the main reason why I ref rugby. So I got in the game. Am I the best ref ever? No, of course not. Do I make mistakes? I do make mistakes. But you know, I'm just hear my heart. I'm not a bad ref. In fact, I'm a pretty good ref. I'm honest. I'm partially fit. <laughs> And I manage people incredibly well. And we have a lot of fun. And rugby's more about man management than it is actually knowing the rules. Most refs don't even know the rules. I've had a few, I've had a few people from the sideline question whether my parents were married to each other. But in general, some of you will catch up with that thought in a moment. But in general, I, I can do a good job. And you know, and what happens? At the end of the, end of the 80 minutes of its schoolboys, 60, 65, at the end of that, about 35 to 40 kids, and if it's school, the associated parents, they go home having seen and played a game of rugby that they have enjoyed doing together. They have gone out, they have been in the fresh air, they have had some good competition, and you have played a role. I sometimes think, I'm gonna be quite direct here. Some guys, some of us guys, we need to get off the sidelines and we need to get in the game. We need to get in the game at a local church and you know, it's absolutely right that our primary focus, our ministry is in the workplace, and that's where God has placed us. I believe that 100%, but sometimes we have made it an excuse not to get involved in our faith community where God needs us as well. Get in the game and stop being a spectator. Don't tell anybody that I make mistakes. So. Point four, pretty straightforward. Converts hear the word of God, disciples live by it. Sadly, I believe to hear a sermon and to read what the Bible says without actually obeying it has become acceptable in our Western first world Christian culture. I think it's acceptable. Hey, this is what the Bible says, but I choose not to do it. And once again, the emphasis is on what suits us, not our responsibilities. You know, I want to encourage you to get the podcast <laughs> from this morning. I was going to say, 
take this off. I was going to say, Don was really good this morning, but he's always really good, isn't it? Bit of a dumb statement. But this morning, he was absolutely outstanding. And he was talking about being part of a, a godly culture or, or an ungodly culture. And he was talking about, uh, from the book of Isaiah, and he was talking about the Revelation series that's coming up and about the mark of the beast. And he was talking about some of his thoughts around that we are either marked by a godliness or we're marked by an ungodliness. And that's for us in the church. And he went on to say there are three ways that you can really mark out godliness and three ways you can mark out ungodliness. And I would say this the same about whether we see ourselves as converts or disciples. And he says three things. First of all, how someone does with their money, what they do with their money will tell you where their heart is, how they use their sexuality and how they live their life in light of the word of God and this sexuality. And the third one was how they live their lives. I think that's a really, really solid challenge for us as disciples. Musicians, come and join me, please. I'm gonna wrap this up. Just wanna bring this to a conclusion for tonight and we will finish up next week. You know, Jesus offers us grace and love without condition, but not without expectation. When we try to water down the message of being a Christian to simply being a convert and not a disciple, we are robbing ourselves of something. If we don't tell people that they have to give up sin, if we don't, people, don't tell people that they have to change, you have to be transformed, that you don't have to worry about dying to yourself, we're doing them an incredible injustice. In not doing so, we are depriving people of the truth. We are denying them of access to a real, transforming relationship with an almighty God. And I finish with this. Christianity isn't just a system of belief. It's not even a lifestyle. Christianity, and to be disciples, is all about a life transformed and ongoingly transformed by Jesus. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church. 